The birth of the Savior is recorded for us in Luke's and Matthew's Gospels, and it's there we turn for the traditional stories of the Nativity. But if Jesus' birth is the focal point of history and of God's Word, then we should expect to discover it throughout the Bible. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. God's Word predicts the coming of the Messiah from cover to cover, and the very first mention of His coming is recorded for us in the third chapter of Genesis, at the very beginning of the Chronicles of God. Listen now as Dr. Boyce explores the history and the prophecy of the coming of our Lord, long before that fateful night in Bethlehem traditionally associated with his birth. Whenever we think of the Christian doctrine of the resurrection, we think first and naturally of the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then after that, secondly, of the epistles, which in different places interpret that and apply it to our own lives. It's a very Remarkable thing, however, that one of the greatest and most profound statements of the doctrine of the resurrection in the entire Bible is found not in the New Testament, where we might expect it, but rather in the Old. And not only that, it's found in what is probably the oldest written book of the Bible. I'm referring to Job, of course, and the testimony that he gave recorded in the 19th chapter. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. Well, the background for it is the story of Job, and it's very well known. The very first paragraph, we're told something about Job. By the standards of his day, he was an extremely rich man. We're given the inventory of his possessions in terms of his flocks and herds. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. Beside that, he had seven sons and three daughters, a wife, and all of the servants that were necessary to take care of that large household, and also ten for all those many animals. That was a rather significant establishment. And yet the most significant thing of all is told us in that first paragraph as well, and it's this, that Job was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. Now that's where the story begins. The next section transports us into heaven, and there we see Satan who has fallen and the fallen angels who disobeyed and rebelled against God with him, coming to present themselves before God, more or less, as we would say, to render an accounting for what they've been doing. God asks what Satan's been doing. Satan's been going up and down in the earth. And then, remarkably, God calls attention to Job. It's not Satan that's attracted to Job, first of all. It's God himself. God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? You've been going up and down on the earth. You know what things are like. You understand human nature. Have you considered Job? Job is an upright man. He fears God and he shuns evil. 
So you see here, for the second time in the book, we're told about Job's character, first in the introduction and now a second time in heaven, and this time from the very lips of God. Now God knows what he's talking about. Job really is an upright man. Now at that point, Satan, who we are told elsewhere, is always the slanderer of the brethren, the accuser of the brethren, begins to slander Job. And he says something like this. He says, well, no wonder he worships you. It's because you made him a rich man. And not only that, you've protected all of the things that you've given him. Who wouldn't accept a bargain like that? Now, God denies that. And God says, in effect, well, we'll put it to the test. You say that he loves me because of what I've given him. I'll allow you to go and take it all away. And then we'll see what Job does. So that's exactly what Satan decides to do. He goes out, and all at once we're told that he did it by a rapid succession of faith-destroying tragedies. All of Job's possessions are removed. The Sabaeans steal his oxen and donkeys, and they kill the servants that are taking care of them. A messenger comes and tells him that lightning fell from the sky and destroyed the sheep and those servants. Another told how raiders from the town of the Chaldeans swept down and carried off the animals. And finally, a messenger brought the terrible news that a tornado swept in from the desert and hit the house where Job's sons and daughters were all dining together. The roof caved in and all of his children were killed. What a tragic and overwhelming combination of events. It's just almost impossible to think of any combination of events being more tragic than that or more shaking. We expect Job to do exactly what Satan said he would do. Satan said he'll curse God if you take his things away. And instead of that, we find exactly the opposite. We find toward the end of the first chapter that Job bows down and worships God and says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked will I return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The very last line of the chapter says, In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. The second chapter is almost like the first, only it's intensified. Once again, we're back in heaven. Satan is there. God calls attention to Job again. And Satan, who is very resourceful in his slander, says, Well, yes, but you have to understand that a person values his health more than anything. Job's afraid that you'll take away his health. If you take away his health, then you'll find that he'll curse you to your face. And so God said to Satan, You may take away his health, only I want you to spare his life. So Satan went out and afflicted Job with these terrible and painful boils. At this point, even his wife turns against him. She says, lashing out, I am sure, in her own pain over the loss of the children, are you still holding on to your integrity? You see, what she was assuming already is what the counselor said later on, that Job himself was at fault. He'd done something terrible. That's why this had come upon him. And she gives him counsel. Her counsel is curse God and die. Job says, wisely and amazingly, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And again, we're told in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, there's a purpose to all of this, of course. Job didn't understand it. Nobody was revealing to Job what was going on. That's why the book goes on for chapter after chapter as his worldly friends try to provide counsel. What really was happening is what I call the meaning of history, and the clue to it is given in that opening introduction to the story. 
God and Satan, and also at the end where it all comes together again. And Job prays for his friends who have given him this bad counsel, and God restores possessions to him, and so on. If the sermons of God have everything going their own way, if God makes us rich and protects us from all calamities and we worship God, well, what does that mean? Anybody with any sense at all would do the same. But you see, if it's when we suffer that we worship God. If when we get sick, we worship God. If when we lose our job, we worship God and praise Him and do not charge Him with wrongdoing, then glory is given to God. And that's what history is all about. That's what we are here to demonstrate. But you see, at this point, Joe doesn't understand all of this. He hasn't the faintest idea why all of this has come upon him. And yet, in the midst of that, you see, all that suffering and without any idea whatsoever why it's coming, we get that remarkable confession of his faith in chapter 19. I find that it has four main points, and I'd like to just take you through them so you understand how remarkable this is. First of all, Job says that he has a redeemer. Now, this idea of a redeemer, a redemption, is so important in the Old Testament that there are three words and not merely one word to describe it. First word is pada, the second is kofer, and the third is ga'al, and the noun form of that is goel, which refers to a redeemer. Now, all three of those words describe that, but Job, in Job 19, uses goel in its noun form, and the unique quality of that word is that it refers to one who is a kinsman, that is, a relative. You see, anybody could exercise the role of a redeemer, but it was the particular responsibility of a kinsman to do so. And that's why the verb, when it appears in the noun form, goel, is usually translated in our Bible, not simply redeemer, but as kinsman redeemer. That is, one who is related to the one who is in trouble. Now, that's the choice of words. Put that into the context. Here's Job speaking. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. What's he talking about? He's talking about God. Of course, the Redeemer is God. That is why in the New International Version, the word Redeemer is capitalized. You see it with a capital R. He's talking about God. But what's he saying? He's saying that this God in whom he trusts is his kinsman. He's related to him related to him by faith, and it's because this God is his relative or kinsman that he knows God will stand by him at the last day. You see how important all of that is? And I ask the question, do you have a Redeemer like that? Is your faith like that? You see, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then God is your kinsman because by faith in Jesus Christ you become part of what we call the family of God. You're a brother or a sister of Jesus. And so God is your kinsman, and he becomes that as you trust in him. If you trust in Jesus Christ, then regardless of what you may go through in life, even if other people abandon you, and there are times when you seem as you look at yourself that you are utterly alone, you are never alone, because you have a great Redeemer, and that Redeemer is God. Now, the second thing that Job says is even more remarkable. He says that this Redeemer, whom he trusts, is one day going to appear upon the earth. Now, you see, up to this point, all we've really been saying is that Job believes in God, a personal and gracious God, to be sure. Job is not talking about the kind of God most people in America have today that is an abstract, unconcerned deity. He's not worshiping somebody like that. The God he believes in is living and powerful and compassionate and vindicating. 
But a lot of the Old Testament figures believed in that. As a matter of fact, most of them did, and they don't leave this kind of testimony behind. Job did. What's really remarkable is what he says in the second line of our text. He believes also that in the end, his Redeemer is going to stand upon the earth. Now, that is nothing less than faith in the coming incarnation of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. What Job is saying is that he believes that one day, sooner or later, first or second, whenever it may be, his Redeemer, that is God, is going to stand upon the earth in human flesh. And as I say, that's nothing less but than faith in the incarnation. Now, it raises the question, doesn't it, where in the world did Job ever get a faith like that? Where did he learn to believe in the incarnation, and especially this early in salvation history? Well, it came by revelation, of course. Nobody would ever make that up, but not necessarily a revelation to Job himself in any special way. Where did he get it? Well, you go back in the earliest pages of the Bible, and you find that even in the Garden of Eden, this is what God had promised our first parents. Remember that Adam and Eve sinned by eating of the fruit of the forbidden tree. God came to pronounce judgment, as he needed to do, and he began with the judgment upon Satan, in the context of which God promised a Redeemer. And what God said was this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Do you see how significant it is? This is what Adam and Eve believed. And it's why they were saved. They were saved because they believed God was going to send a Redeemer, and they looked forward to His coming and had faith in Him. In other words, they looked forward just like we look back. Now, that was the hope. That was the gospel. That was the message that they passed on from generation to generation. But the remarkable thing about Job is that here we find in this early, almost prehistoric time, at least so far as the biblical revelation goes, this faith had spread even beyond the immediate family of Abraham to a godly eastern cattle breeder, and that he no less than the others was looking forward to the Jesus who should come. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that important? It's important for this reason. See, it's a way of saying in clear terms that in all the long history of the human race, there has never been any other way of salvation than by the work of Jesus Christ. Salvation comes through him who defeated Satan at the cross, though Satan struck him and wounded him in the process, and who overcame Satan and even death by the power of his resurrection. We challenge you to believe that and believe it in God's name. The third of these teachings, aspects of Job's faith that we find in our text is that when his Redeemer stands upon the earth in that far-off day, whenever it may be, Job himself is going to see him. Now, you see, each of these statements is more remarkable than the last. What we find is that he actually believes in his own personal bodily resurrection. See, here's what he says, after my skin has been destroyed, that is, after he dies and is buried and the worms destroy his body, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes and not another. That's so remarkable, you really have to think about it in parts. It means, first of all, that Job believed in the afterlife. He believed that when he died, it wouldn't be the end of Job. But rather, he would still be there, knowing who he was in his own person, you see. And then the second part of it, of course, is that he's going to have a bodily resurrection. The body he is in will die, and it will decay and be destroyed. But one day, 
His Redeemer is going to intervene on his behalf, and when that happens, he's going to stand upon the earth and see with his own eyes, not with the eyes of another, not by the report of somebody you can see, and Job not being able to see, but with his own eyes, his own physical eyes, he's going to see his Redeemer. The last point is this. He believed that in that day when his Redeemer would stand upon earth and he would see him with his own eyes, he would be vindicated. Now, we've already alluded to that, and of course, it's the background of everything that's been said. That's what the whole story is about. Here is Job, the righteous man, suffering all these things, and people who look on from the outside say, well, he must have done something to deserve it. If this is a moral universe, God doesn't let bad things happen to good people. The good people must actually be bad. Job, search your heart to see what it is that you've done. Job knew perfectly well that he wasn't perfect. He was a sinner like everybody else, but he knew he hadn't done anything to deserve those calamities. You see, what he's saying is that at the last day, God is going to explain it all. He's going to vindicate him, and it's going to be clear to other people that whatever the reason for what happened to him, it was not because he was actually corrupt inside and was cursing God secretly in his heart. He actually worshiped God. But you see, even though that's the background, it becomes specifically clear in the verses that follow at the very end of the chapter, because in those last verses, Job turns to his friends who have been given him all this worldly counsel, and he says to them, remember that that judgment day is coming for you too. What they're saying, you see, verse 28, is the root of the trouble lies in him. The reason Job has these problems is because he's a bad man. But, he says, you should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that there's a judgment. See, that's involved in the resurrection too. That there is a judgment, that there is a final reckoning up. And in that day, the God of the universe, who does all things justly and all things well, is going to punish evil and reward the good. Satan slanders us, saying, skin for skin, all that a man has, he'll give for his own life. But Satan, in that day, the day of God's judgment and the final reckoning, is going to depart and everlasting punishment utterly overwhelmed and confused. While the saints are going to sing around the throne of God in heaven to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And that's what it's all about. I've already made two points. I've talked about Job's remarkable story, and then secondly, about Job's remarkable faith. The last point is simply this, Job's remarkable response. And by this, I mean his remarkable response to suffering. In other words, you see, having looked at the story and then moved ahead to chapter 19 to look at his faith, we now go back and look at the story and see that it's because of the faith he had that he was able to respond the way he did. In other words, it was his faith in Jesus, his living Redeemer, that made all the difference. You say, well, what was the difference? Well, for one thing, hope instead of despair. If ever any circumstances of life could have led a man to despair, it's those that overwhelmed Job. They were sudden, overwhelming, undeserved, and unmitigated. But he was not overwhelmed. He was hard-pressed, yes. He was perplexed, that too. He was persecuted by Satan, of course, struck down, yes, but still believing, still trusting, still giving glory to God. And so will it be for you, because that's what God promises. 
God says that there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, and God will, with the temptation, also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. Job didn't know Jesus by name, but his faith was in Jesus all the same. And those who trust Jesus find that to be exactly true. Job's strength in suffering can be yours if you belong to him. And then here's the second response, praise instead of cursing. You see, cursing is what Satan said would come. Satan said, look, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Or in the next chapter, stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. But Job did not curse God. Instead, Job said, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And may the name of the Lord be praised. See, the world will never do that. The world can't do that. Satan was absolutely right in what he said. If he was talking about an unregenerate man or woman, he was saying, all that a man or woman has, that person will give, if only you will preserve his life, and that they'll acknowledge God as long as things are good. But take away those things. They don't sing praises to God. They curse God. As a matter of fact, even when they prosper, they seldom think of the name of God. Satan was absolutely right when he's talking about the natural man. The Christians are not natural in that sense. They are supernatural beings because the Holy Spirit has made them spiritually alive in Jesus Christ through faith in Him. And because of that, Christians sing. They sing at Easter and they sing at funerals. Christians sing in their hearts even when the most terrible things come upon them because they know that their Redeemer lives. And that one day He'll stand upon the earth, they will see Him with their own eyes, and in that day they will be vindicated. Job says a little later on in the story, even though he slay me, yet will I fear him. And the question is, can you say that? You have that faith. Trying to answer that question honestly is one way you can determine whether you're a Christian or not. And whether you believe in the doctrine of the resurrection, which we talk about on Easter, as a reality and not merely a strange religious curiosity. This doctrine, and all the others, will become a reality for you when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And remember this. Remember that the Goel was the kinsman of the one who was redeemed. So ask yourself the question, is Jesus Christ my kinsman? Am I related to him by saving faith? Remember that when Job talks about his Redeemer, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And ask yourself that question, is he my Redeemer? Is he my Jesus? Claim that personal relationship with Jesus for yourself. In fact, don't even rest tonight until you know that you really rest in him. Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. 
please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at 1-800-488-1888 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine, North Bay, Ontario, P1B0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.